Episode 4, The Law of the Wilderness, Part 2. I slammed the book shut, unwilling to read further. I, I couldn't say why, but Kephart's writing was starting to freak me out and make me angry. Thunder and rain pounded the bookshop. I looked through the window. Outside, I could see the water rising again. It made me nervous. There's so much power in nature. If nature chooses to take us, I mean really decides our time is up, then honestly, we're helpless. It was strange, but that was the exact same feeling the book was giving me. Storm's picking up steam, the bookseller whispered. Hope the worst was over, but I was wrong. I realized the bookseller was standing behind me, reading over my shoulder. I twisted around to look at him, a little upset and, frankly, creeped out that he had been standing so close to me without saying anything. And his face was different. Still had that eternal quality, but it was darker somehow. You stopped reading, he said. I nodded, yes. The bookseller looked pained. Why? he asked. I couldn't really say. Sure, the storm and flood were distracting, and this entire situation was strange and getting stranger by the second, but that's not why I'd stop. There was something deep inside of me that recoiled at every word, every new paragraph. Not in horror or disgust, it was more like catching your reflection in the mirror and disliking what you see. It was unnerving. I just didn't want to keep going, but that's not what I said to the bookseller. I don't believe a word of this, I said to him. No wonder his publisher refused to print it. Magic granny women, the devil in a cave, wolf man. It's salacious, made up junk. It's just a grab bag of old Appalachian superstitions. The bookseller just looked at me, a sadness in his eyes. You believe so, huh? He shook his head and scratched his face, waiting for my answer. I nodded, I did think so. What was written here in this lost edition of our Southern Highlanders was preposterous. I had read the final version of Horace Kephart's book, and yeah, I could see the similarities, but this earlier version was obviously fiction that the man had tried to pass off as some sort of memoir. This last bolt of lightning was close, very close. It flashed bright, almost blinding me, and its thunder rattled the floorboards of the old shop. As my vision returned, I, I saw the bookseller was still behind me, his finger raised, jaw set, face expressionless and unmoving, like it was carved out of stone. He pointed out the window. That's when I saw it, for real this time. I lost my breath and I started shaking. There was no denying it now. I was either witnessing something fantastic or I had lost my mind. It stood on two legs and wore ripped denim overalls, but was covered in hair and had a snout and pointed ears. Teeth stained blood red, its eyes were yellow like amber. It was what I had thought I'd seen chasing me into the bookshop, but refused to acknowledge. It was what I had been catching glimpses of this entire storm, but had refused to believe I saw. But there it was, right across the street from me, soaking in the rain. The bookseller touched my shoulder and whispered in my ear, don't worry. Don't worry? I spat back at him. Is that supposed to make me feel better? He nodded a bit sheepishly. Well, I growled, one eye on the bookseller and the other watching the clothed animal stalking us from across the street. It's not working. It can't cross water, he said, confidence in his voice. We're safe as long as the weather holds. Great, I moaned. If the rain stops, at least we won't drown. We'll just be eaten by a friggin' wolfman. The bookseller nodded curtly. That is correct. What does it want? I asked, afraid of the answer to my own question. Keep reading. The bookseller's voice had lost a bit of its former swagger. Watching that half-man, half-animal pace back and forth across the road was taking its toll on his confidence. The answer is in the book, he continued. Finish it while there's still time. I looked down at the book in my lap. Every fiber in my being was screaming at me, run, get away. But that same strange feeling of compulsion came back and drove me on. Try as I might, I couldn't stop myself. The terror I felt was powerful, but not powerful enough to overcome this other feeling, this compulsion to stick around. Why in God's name did I want to stick around? I racked my brain for an answer. What the hell is wrong with me? Am I insane? Have I got a death wish? No, it was none of that. 
I realized the thing driving me to read and compelling me to hang around this bookshop was the same thing that made me study journalism in college and stay in a low-paying job at a small local newspaper. I wanted to know what was really going on. I always want to know what's really going on. And if I left now, I would never know what was pacing and howling as it stopped us from across the floodwater. I picked up the book, took a deep breath, and opened it back up. This is Moonshine Land, a story of haunted Appalachia. Based on Horace Kephart's true account of moonshine, murder, and mountain mayhem, our Southern Highlanders, and Madeline Vinton Dahlgren's classic description of the Appalachian occult, South Mountain Magic, Moonshine Land is the story of my attempt to discover the truth behind a Prohibition-era manhunt for a fugitive moonshiner. But instead of uncovering the story of a human criminal, I found evidence of an ancient Appalachian evil that has been hiding in the hills for centuries. And this ancient evil was not happy to have been disturbed. Listen on if you dare. Chapter 9, Breakfast with the Devil I walked alongside the snakestick man. His face was placid as always. His gait was not fast, nor was it slow. Everything was as it would usually be, which I found most disturbing. Because after what had happened last night, nothing could possibly be the same. I opened my mouth several times, intending to speak, but refrained in every instance. I could not bring myself to utter anything but a deep, shuddering sigh. In a short while we came upon Ketch, who had built a small fire and was cooking breakfast. Eggs and fried apples, I think it was. You cannot imagine my surprise at the state my dear friend Ketch was in. He was well. No sign of his wound, no blood on his skin. Nothing. All that remained as evidence of his near death were his clothes. They were torn. Shredded, in fact, anywhere on his torso where the buckshot had entered his body. Ketch looked up as we approached. Then he smiled at me. Morning, Kephart, he chirped. Where you been all night? We were worried about you. I was unnerved, to say the least. Did he not remember? Did he not wish to say anything in front of the snakestick man? Or had he lost his mind? My dear Ketch, I managed to blurt out. You're... I pointed at Catch's torn jacket, waistcoat, and shirt. Your wound. The snakestick man saw me staring at Catch's torso and heard me fighting to speak. He knelt down beside the fire and helped himself to a bit of what Catch was cooking. There is no wound, Horace, he purred. But, I protested. I saw him shot. I saw you shot, Catch. I carried you from the field, mortally wounded, bleeding like a stuck hog. And yet... The snakestick man spoke, his mouth full of breakfast. You see, he is not shot. Now, you must understand, dear reader, although I had just witnessed a strange shadow demon attack me and the granny woman, and even though I was now myself walking on a broken leg that had been healed overnight by mountain magic, I still could not quite believe what I was witnessing. This was not a lack of faith or a stubbornness, or even a desire for things to be different. It was none of that. As a matter of truth, I wanted the magic to be real. I had been searching these hills for the kind of mystic truths these past few days had uncovered. Years ago, when my life had turned sour, after my wife and child had abandoned me, I had at first wished for, and then come to believe that, there could be more to this world than meets the eye, more to this life than the simple pleasures that work and family bring and more to this life than the agony and pain those same institutions rain down upon us. There must be more, I had thought to myself, and so I will go out into these primeval hills and search for it. So you see, I wanted to believe that Catch's wound was no more. Even if the power that had healed him was the darkest this universe had yet vomited forth from the ancient void, 
I still wanted it to be true. But my eyes, try as they might, could not convince my mind that what they saw was real. The snake stick man was watching me, chewing his breakfast and holding his walking staff, running his fingers over the head of the wooden serpent that crowned the top of this, his constant traveling companion. Very well, he said, apparently reading my mind. Place your hand on him and feel with your fingers what your eyes refuse to acknowledge. No, no, I think that is not necessary, I managed to say as I sat down next to Catch and reached for one of the tin plates beside the cook fire. Do it now, Kephart. This was the first time I had ever heard the snakestick man raise his voice, and it sent fingers of ice up my back and into the base of my skull. I looked over at Catch, who was seated beside me. Catch, I whispered, terrified. Not now, was all he said as he turned to me and offered his body. Reluctantly, I lifted my hand and brought it towards Catch's clothed torso. As I did, I swear to you, the tongue of the serpent at the top of the snake-stick man's walking staff flickered, tasting my fear on the air. I looked at Catch, suddenly aware how uncomfortably close my face was to his. It's all right, he said. Go ahead. The snake-stick man watched me as my fingers descended deeper, finding their way through layers of shredded textile. I expected at any moment to feel the warm wet of blood or the strange slip of intestine. But all I felt when my hand finished its journey was Catch's skin. I was flabbergasted and felt around and around, searching for some evidence of the shotgun blast that had nearly taken my friend's life. But I felt nothing except Catch's hand pulling mine away. Easy, Capart, he said. That shit tickles. The snake-stick man was still staring at me, and his staff was still tasting my terror on the breeze. I sat in dumbstruck silence for a moment. Then I heard the snake-stick man whisper, O ye of little faith, now do you believe? I looked at him, stared into the impenetrable dark eyes that sat deep in his head and nodded. Yes, yes, I thought, I do believe. God help me, but I do. Eat with us, Horace, the snake-stick man offered. A hot meal will do you good. Very well, I said. Then, remembering that we had lost all our provisions during the shootout at Bearedale's camp, a question formed in my mind. Where, I asked, did we come across the makings of this meal? The snake-stick man smiled at me again and shook his head. Eat of this that I provide to you and gather strength for the journey ahead, was all he would say. We ate in silence, the three of us, sitting in the back of the beyond, deep in the ancient Appalachian hills, shivering in the gun-blue dawn. Chapter 10, Back to Bryson City After we finished our meal, the snake-stick man stood up and announced that we would call off the search for Buck Ruff and head back to Bryson City. He was sure that Buck was no longer in the area, and that we should waste no more time or resources in searching for him. I opened my mouth, too. I don't know what I was going to say exactly. Not to protest, as I did not care if we found Buck or not, and not to bother speaking of the law, because I was now quite sure this journey had nothing to do with earthly justice at all. So I was unsure what I was going to say, and yet felt compelled to speak. But Ketch put his hand on my arm and shook his head no so I said nothing. We walked halfway across the mountain that day and spent the night in the home of a reluctantly hospitable man named Tuckett. His house was warm, but the pallets he made up for us on which we slept were crawling with fleas. We came across a logging road the next morning and hitched a ride into Bryson City on a farmer's hay truck that just happened to be passing by. All in all, the trip home was remarkably uneventful. Barely a word was spoken between us the entire journey but my thoughts were racing along with my pulse. I could not wait to get Catch alone, away from the snake-stick man. There was something I had to say to him. Chapter 11. Ways That Are Dark Once we returned to Bryson City, life went on in a remarkably conventional way. Within a few days, the snake-stick man left town. 
headed off to another case somewhere back out west after receiving a telegram from his employers at the U.S. Marshal Service. I returned to my rooms at the boarding house, and Catch returned to the Buzumo's family at their home on the Cherokee Reservation behind the Kuala Boundary. As you know, dear reader, I had grown very close with Catch's family and felt them to be a replacement of sorts for the one I had once had and lost when my wife and child left me. So you may imagine my concern for them when we all returned to Bryson City without our quarry and therefore without Catch's $500 in bail money. Even though Catch's family had their patriarch returned to them miraculously uninjured, they still did not have the money they needed to survive. You see, the economic calamity that was still to come, the market crash of 1929 and the misery of the Great Depression was still somewhere over the horizon for most of America. But in the wilds of Appalachia, where Catch and I lived, depressed prices for farm goods following the end of the Great War had taken an already impoverished rural population and exposed them to the pain and deprivation of the impending economic collapse years before the rest of the nation. Many people in Appalachia were already poor and close to starvation in 1922. Following our unfruitful raid into the Sugarlands, Catch and I found we were not far behind them. After a shared supper on one of the many evenings I spent at Catch's home, I stepped outside to light my pipe. I did not smoke inside the house, as Catch's wife and son had a great sensitivity to tobacco smoke. We had dined that evening on venison shot in the woods nearby, potatoes grown in Catch's garden, and a wild apple cobbler made with sugar bought by the very last of the money I had left over from the sale of my most recent book. Everything had been scrounged and nothing, save the sugar, was store-bought. We had hardly anything left at all to sustain ourselves. Catch stepped out onto the porch next to me and rolled a cigarette. As you know, he only ever smoked when in the most terrible distress, and as I lit a match for him I could see pain and fear reflected in his eyes. We had not spoken of the strange events of our raid into the Sugarlands with the Snake Stick Man since we returned home except for one time. I had broached the subject, concerned for the state of my friend's soul following what I had now come to believe was a pact, if not with the devil himself, than with some lesser demon of no less danger. But Catch was adamant. He did not believe that anything of any sort of supernatural nature had occurred. But you, Catch, I had said, you saw things with your own eyes, experienced miraculous events with your own body. You felt the lead tear into your belly and then felt it healed the very next day. How can you not believe? Yet it mattered not. There was no convincing my friend of the truth of his recovery, no matter what I said. And furthermore, his anger at being reminded of it caused him to keep me at a distance for some time. It was a most painful thing for me to endure, the loss of my friend and surrogate family over what was only my truest and deepest concern for them. So when... Late the following winter, Ketch once again invited me to his home. I leapt at the chance to visit with the friends I loved so much and missed so dearly. And it was following this meal and happy reunion that I found myself outside on the porch with Ketch. He took a deep breath and expelled the smoke from his lungs. It hung in the still night air, catching moonlight. I'm ruined, Kephart, he said. There is no money left. I got no work. If we'd gotten a hold of that damn buck rough last year, I could survive on the money we got turning him in. But we didn't. So there ain't any. And I am desperate. Yes, I agreed. I too am ruined. There is no money left, and I have been unable to find any work myself. We stood there in silence for a moment longer. I knew what Ketch was about to suggest, and I was already forming my answer. Finally, Ketch offered up his plan. I have just enough left to buy some copper line. Do you have enough to buy some corn? I nodded. Catch an hour about to embark on the very same business adventure that had drawn the law down on Buck Ruff. We were to become moonshiners. There are two types of moonshiner. The big time man and the little moonshiner. Big-time men are not much better than common gangsters who run their businesses like the Mafia. The Little Moonshiner is a more interesting character, if for no other reason that he fights fair, according to his code, and single-handed against tremendous odds. He is innocent of graft. 
There's nothing between him and the whole power of the federal government except his own wits and a well-worn Winchester or muzzle loader. Although a criminal in the eyes of the law, he is soundly convinced that the law is unjust and that he is only exercising his natural rights. Such a man suffers none of the moral degradation that comes from violating his conscience. His self-respect is whole. And it was that type of moonshiner that we became. It takes three men to run a still, two if you hustle, and being unwilling to split our profits a third way, Catch and I resolved to take turns that winter in the isolated log shanty where we hid our clandestine work. One of us minded the still while the other made runs to town in a borrowed vehicle in order to buy supplies and make deliveries. The still was located up high in the mountains, far from prying eyes, but near a source of running water. You need a constant supply of fresh running water to make shine, and our shanty was hastily constructed in a small clearing near a diminutive mountain stream. Once the shine was made and bottled up, we took it down to a holler in the valley below and left it in a shed. From there we took it by pickup to various buyers in the local towns. The way down the mountain road from the holler where we stored our finished product was treacherous, and there was a blind curve at the end of Grayson's Gap that took many a driver by surprise, local and out-of-towner alike. I feel I may have mentioned this blind curve to you before. In any case, it was there that I managed to lose a full load of corn liquor once when driving too fast. I skidded off the road and turned our truck over on its side. Catch was angry about the lost moonshine as well as the cost of repairing the truck, but he was relieved I had not died. He made me promise to take it slow on the back roads from then on. And take them slow I did. Unless, of course, I was being followed. Or thought I was being followed. So Catch relieved me of my duties as delivery driver, taking over himself and stationed me permanently at the still in the woods up on the mountain. And so one night, when I was alone in the shanty while Catch took his turn as delivery man, a blizzard come up and snowed me in. I was sitting by the still, mining the fire in the mash and listening to the wind blow when I heard it. I knew what it was at once, and when I heard the footsteps approaching the door of the shack, I knew it was coming to visit me. So, at once and without resisting, I opened the door. There he was. Buck Ruff, the Wolfman of Appalachia, the Black Dog of South Mountain. He was only half-beast now, transforming enough to cover himself with fur as a defense against the cold, but not changing completely. I could yet see the man beneath the monster as it stepped through the door into my moonshine shanty. What do you want? I asked. Betrayed me, Kephart. Dunn made a fool of me, he answered. I asked you, just after Baradell's camp, I could have killed you, torn you to shreds, but I didn't. Instead, I asked you to help me. Told you to let Catch die, but you didn't, did you, Kephart? Didn't let him die. You was too slow to find him, and you let him live, and now he will suffer same as me. Suffer how, I demanded. What will you do to him? Me? The wolf growled. I ain't gonna do nothing. It's the snake stick man that's gonna take him. And soon. I did not understand and told Buck as much. Buck, the wolf man, explained to me that he had once run across the snake stick man years ago when he was a young moonshiner. Buck had been mortally wounded in a backwoods firefight between himself and a few revenue men. As Buck crawled across the ground, bleeding to death, the snake-stick man had appeared to him. Just as with Catch in the cave, the shadow had danced and the snake-stick man had made a deal with Buck, his soul for his life. And Buck, fool that he was, had agreed. But Buck's life after the snake-stick man healed him had been but a half-life. Because, just as the granny woman had told me, at night, when the snake-stick man called to him, Buck turned into a monstrous beast and was forced to do the snake-stick man's bidding. It was a fate so terrible that Buck, not known to anyone as anything resembling an empathetic man, grew to hate the horrid things he was compelled to do because of how they harmed the people around him. So he tried to resist the call of the snake-stick man, tried to resist his commands. He found that it was difficult, but not impossible to disobey. 
and the further away from the snake-stick man that Buck was, the easier resisting his will could be. There were limits, however, like when the snake-stick man's life was in danger during the shootout at Bearedale's lumber camp. The snake-stick man had commanded Buck to come to his aid, and aid him he had. Bullets do not kill the black dog of South Mountain. They do not harm the wolfman of Appalachia. In fact, what I had once read in Dahlgren's book, I had also seen with my own eyes. The more lead one fires into the wolfman of Appalachia, the larger and stronger it becomes. It was after this raid on Bearedell's camp, when the snake-stick man had Catch in the cave, that Buck realized that the snake-stick man planned to make the same deal for Catch's soul that he had made for Buck's. And as I said, although Buck was not an empathetic man, he wished no one to suffer the same fate he had. So, unable to resist the snake-stick man's power with him so close, he had tried to enlist me to save Catch's soul. He hoped to have me disrupt the evil ritual in the cave long enough to allow Catch to die before the snake-stick man could buy his soul. That is what he had meant when he stood over me in the woods outside Baradell's camp and said, Help. But the call of the snake-stick man became too strong, and Buck had to leave me for a time before explaining the situation. And my leg was so badly injured, my strength so sapped, that I passed out before Buck could return and explain things. So he took me to his grandmother, the granny woman, and asked her to heal me and explain the truth in time for me to stop the snake-stick man from trading for Catch's soul. But Catch was dying too quickly, and my leg healing too slowly, even with the help from the granny woman's magic, to make it to the cave in time. So Catch did trade his soul to keep his mortal alive, even if he did not remember it that way. Truth be told, even had I understood what Buck was trying to tell me back when he stood over me, transformed into the wolf man, I think I would have not had the strength to follow through and let Catch die. I am weak when it comes to the ones I love. Catch was the closest thing to family I had anymore, and I could not stand the thought of a loneliness so profound as the loss of my best friend. I do not think I could have let him die if I had known there was a way to save him, no matter the consequences. Why, Buck? Why have you come to tell me this now? I asked. The wolfman shuddered and shook the melting snow off his back the way a wolf or a dog shakes to do the same. Because, Kephart, time is coming for your friend Catch, and I can't bear to be the reason another man suffers this fate, my miserable fate. Old Snake Stick only keeps one of us at a time, only needs one wolfman at a whack. And when he makes a new deal on a new soul, he takes a gander in the book and it tells him when that new soul is fixing to die. And when that new soul dies, old Snake Stick is there, waiting on its everlasting spirit. And when he takes of it in his evil hands, I am released of this, my burden. No longer will I be the black dog of South Mountain, and I will finally be allowed to die. But that new soul, the soul of in your friend the Cherokee, he becomes what I am now and damned he will be, damned to walk this earth as the black dog, as the wolf man of Appalachia, murdering and killing on the evil snake-stick man's command, until either Gabriel sees fit to blow his horn, and then this godforsaken earthly mess, or the snake-stick man sees fit to take him a new soul. What do I do, I asked, for I was at a total loss. How do I stop this? Buck sat back on his hairy, canid haunches and pulled his lips back into a snarl. You die, Horace. You die to rescue your friend's soul. Buck was almost entirely transformed into the wolfman now, his ears and mouth growing pointed and long. I thought perhaps he was going to take me to hell right there, right then, but he made no move against me. It's tonight when Ketch is set to give up the ghost on the liquor run to town in that damn pickup truck you flipped before. The revenue men are on to him. They done set a trap and are waiting on him out there on the road to town. Old Ketch is gonna make a run for it, but while he's speeding down the road through Grayson's Gap, he'll hit a patch of ice and crash in the truck. And when he dies in the wreck, old Snake Stick is gonna be there, awaiting in the trees to take his soul to hell and make his body evil. Evil like mine is now. And you may think I would be skeptical of all this talk of souls and hell and Gabriel's horn, but I must tell you, my conversion to faith, my belief in powers both good and evil, 
was carved on my heart ever since I saw the Wolfman tearing through the bodies of those outlaw lumbermen at Beardell's camp. I was convinced of the truth of Buck's words. Still unsure how to stop the snake-stick man from taking Catch's soul, I said as much. The Wolfman became angry and stood up, the hair on his back raised up like a rabid dog's. Like my grandma told you before the shadow took her yonder to the flames, trick him, Kephart. Don't let Catch take the truck. You drive it and Catch lives, then the deal is broken. The snake stick man must have been closer than we realized, because Buck soon lost control of himself and began to snarl and snap his teeth at me. Maybe I'll kill you now, Kephart, he growled, and just let your friend take my place. I ran from the moonshine shack out into the cold night and leapt across the creek. The wolfman paced on the other side of the bank, rage in its eyes and murder in its howl. How lucky for me that just then I had remembered a passage from Dahlgren's book, South Mountain Magic. I remembered that the black dog of South Mountain could not cross water, and that may have given me just enough time. Chapter 12. Word of God. Law of Nature. I ran. Heart racing and lungs burning, I ran through drifted snow and barreled down the mountainside. I could hear the wolfman's howls heading north, making for the start of the creek, a place high up the mountain where water sprang forth from between two stones. Once there, he could cross the creek without crossing water by climbing above its rocky genesis and come for me. Tree branches and icy wind cut my face and tore at my exposed skin. I had left the shanty in such a hurry that I did not bring my winter coat with me. I made for the valley, running directly for that particular holler where we stored our moonshine. We had a strict rule, never, ever approach the hidden holler in a straight line, especially when there's snow on the ground, but I had no choice. Time was of the essence, and the wolfman was making up ground quickly. Besides, it did not matter if our hiding spot was found. This was the last run. No more moonshine, no more snake stick man, no more nothing. For me anyway. I do not know if you have ever attempted to travel through mountain snow afoot, but if you have not, let me assure you, it is agony. The hard icy top of the drifts crack beneath you and your leg drops down into a quicksand of soft white powder, draining you of your strength and sapping you of your energies. As I strode through this white hell on two legs, I was acutely aware of the wolfman's four-legged advantage and I redoubled my efforts. I became so winded, the thought crossed my mind that I may die. No. No, I thought to myself. You will not die now. Not yet. When your friend is safe in the bosom of his family, then perhaps. But not yet. For I had made up my mind. The wolfman was correct. If not for me, Ketch would have never gone on the raid into the Sugarlands after Buck Ruff, and he would have never been made to deal with the sinister snake stick man. The agony of the Great War should have been more than enough to earn my dear friend a few years of peace with his wife and son. But no, I had ruined that. I had ruined everything. My own family had abandoned me years before for reasons that are quite understandable. I was a difficult man, an unpleasant man. I had allowed the worst parts of me to poison the best thing that ever had come into my world. I would not allow that to happen again. Forgiveness. Forgiveness, I thought to myself as I struggled to descend that frozen, winter, white mountainside. I had seen evil, therefore I was confident its opposite must exist. So God would forgive me, I hoped, for what I was about to do. Heavy breathing and thundering step announced my presence long before my silhouette was visible in the blue moonlight. Catch was waiting in the holler, crouched behind our old Ford, cigarette in his mouth, drawn gun in his hand. The truck was loaded and ready to go, the engines rumbling muffled by the thick snowfall, the vapor rising silently from the exhaust pipe. It was a miracle Catch did not shoot me on sight. I was not expected in the secret place, and this was a moment of great danger and strain for my friend. What the hell are you doing here, Kephart? he roared, finally recognizing me. Who's watching the still? No time to explain, I wheezed, my mouth dry as sandpaper, lungs screaming for air. We are discovered. What? Ketch blinked and tried to comprehend. The revenue men. They know you plan to make a run down the state road tonight. They lay in wait for you now. Ketch was at first confused, then angry, then suspicious. 
How did I come to know the revenue had laid a trap? How could I be sure? And why had I waited to tell him until now? I could make no good excuse and was forced to tell Catch the truth. The Wolfman of Appalachia is Buck Ruff, and Buck Ruff is the Wolfman. He was transformed by the Snake Stick Man's black magic. He came to warn me that the Snake Stick Man will make good on his deal with you this very night. He plans to take your soul at the side of the road after the revenue men make a corpse of you. Catch did not look angry as I expected him to. He seemed mostly disappointed. Kephart, he moaned. That's just superstitious bullshit. You should see a head shrinker. And with that he made to get in the truck. No, I cried as I grabbed his coat and pulled him away from the vehicle. You must not go. The evil is real. You have seen it with your own eyes. How can you not believe? Ketch studied me, his eyes unable to hide the pain he felt. I just don't, that's all. How is that possible? I demanded, for I could not imagine how a man who had seen the same things I had seen could somehow come to a different conclusion than I had. Because, Ketch fairly screamed, I can't. It's too much, don't you understand? Damn you, Kephart! I was born, here, in the land of my ancestors. But the government, your government, tells us how we should live. I've been a soldier, traveled across the ocean, I wore the boots, I carried the gun. Catch his words trailed off. He lit another cigarette, and as he did, he stared at the long, deep scars on his palms. I saw things over there, he breathed. Things no one should. No. Not just saw. I did things. Awful damn things, Kephart. And sure, I did them because people who have more say than me. The army. The government. They told me to. But I was the one who acted. I'd done them. No one else. That's on me. Then I come home, to my people's home, and still the government, that same government that sent me over there, and white folks, white folks like you, treat me like I'm some kind of second-class citizen. And then my daughter, my poor baby daughter, Ketch's words caught in his throat. He came the closest to tears than as I ever saw him. The pain, Kephart, he continued, it is enough. The horror of my real life is enough. And this snake stick man and his black dog, this devil and his wolf man, whatever you think it is, whatever the old tales say they are, I don't need it and I don't want it. There is only this. Ketch pointed first at the ground beneath his feet, then pulled up his coat sleeve and pointed at the veins in his arms. The ground below me, the blood in my veins, the breath in my chest, this is all there is and all there ever will be. I can't take it if there's anything more than that. Oh, my dear Ketch, I whispered, my voice quivering. I am sorry. Yeah, yeah, Ketch grumbled, flicking a bit of ash from the end of his cigarette before placing it back between his lips. It's all right. It's all right. Look, you try to understand, Kephart. Most people don't. But you really try. That's why. Ketch paused there and seemed to mull something over in his mind before he continued. You care enough to try. And that's why I call you friend. That is why I love you. So just go back up the mountain and watch our still while I make this run to town, okay? I nodded. Deeply touched. But said nothing. Besides... Ketch had a sideways grin on his face as he said this, cigarette clamped between his teeth. If there is a hell, you know my ass is headed there anyway. It was at that moment that we heard the wolfman. He was closer now. Forgive me, I said as I threw the punch that knocked Catch unconscious. My dear friend, I whispered as Catch slumped to the ground. He may not have believed in the wolfman's prophecy and the snake stick man's power, but I did, and there was no way in hell I was going to allow the snake stick man to get his hands on my friend's soul. Not this night, not this way. So I put the unconscious catch in the nearby shed to keep him out of the weather, then made for the truck. 
Once inside the old Ford and roaring down the road, I came to two realizations. First, the snow was heavy here, but not near as bad as at the higher elevations where the moonshine still was located. So while the roadway was treacherous, it was not impassable. Second, I had no idea where I should go or what I should do now the catch was safe in the holler and I was in the possession of the moonshine. Perhaps, I thought, there was no need for me to die tonight. If I took the load of illicit liquor down the road away from town, then dumped it in the river, no one would be the wiser. The revenue men would not find me. Catch's deal with that demon would still be broken, and I could go on living and spending time with my friends for who knows how long. I jerked the wheel to the side as a bullet entered my arm, tearing flesh and crushing bone. I managed to get the truck back under control and kept going. The revenue were hot on my heels. They must have been watching the holler, not only the road into town. The revenue kept shooting and I kept driving. A mad dash into the Appalachian night toward what end? I no longer knew. Trees whipped by me on the side of the mountain road. The revenue men kept shooting, peppering the truck with lead. They hit one back tire, then another, but I kept driving. Motoring on with what seemed like wild abandon, but now I had a plan. My time in these hills had prepared me for a moment like this. I made for Grayson's Gap, for on the other side was that hairpin turn on the blind curve above the cliff. I knew it was there, but I was reasonably sure the revenue did not. The old truck shuddered and screamed, the iron wheels sparking against stones on the gravel road. Blood poured from my wound and I felt dizzy, but still I drove on. There it was. Just ahead was Grayson's Gap. I leaned on the throttle, picking up speed. The revenue did as well, desperate as they were to catch me. The gap was close now, and I made my move. I hit the brakes and cut the wheel, taking my truck toward the hillside. As the old Ford careened into the roadside ditch, I held my breath and prayed. But there was no need to be afraid now because my plan had worked. The revenue men blew by me, taken completely by surprise, and flew over the side of the mountain. I heard their truck as they skidded down the hill. I could hear them yelling and cussing as they tried to get their vehicles back on the road, but I knew they would have no luck, at least not until morning. The winter weather had them trapped. I gingerly backed the old Ford out of the ditch and made my way down the road in the other direction, wholly unconcerned with the damage I was doing to it by driving on two completely flat tires. I was alive! I had outwitted both the revenue men and the snake stick man all in one night. Catch was alive, safe, and I was too. I could not believe my luck as I tore down the road, heading for the river to dump this load of moonshine and making all sorts of plans for the future when... The wolfman leapt from the trees beside the road, landed on top of the truck, and broke the driver's side window with his massive paw. He reached into the cab and grabbed my wounded shoulder, sending lightning bolts of pain up and down my body. Forgive me, Kipper, he growled as he jerked the steering wheel to the side and sent us creaming off the road and into the trees. I am no longer myself. When I opened my eyes, I was laying on the ground, staring up into the black night sky. Snowflakes were falling, tiny pallid dancers descending from the dark night above down to the winter white ground below. The snake stick man was kneeling over me, holding his serpentine staff. Am I dying? I asked him. He smiled that strange smile of his and shook his head. No, tonight is not your night. Isn't written in the book like this. Catch is supposed to be lying here in the ditch. That's right, I managed to croak, a surge of happiness momentarily replacing cold dread and the numbing pain of the gunshot and the crash. Your unholy pact is broken. Again, the snake stick man just smiled. The curve of his lips and the shine of his teeth unnerved me. Unholy, he mused. Those are the words of God. But I am not the word of God. I am the law. The law of nature. The law of the wilderness. And holiness makes no difference in my world. There is only give and take. Life and death. Weight and counterweight. I blinked snow out of my eyes and spit blood cold dread was returning along with the pain in my arm from the gunshot. But Catch did not die tonight. No, he did not, the snake stick man purred. But one night he will. There is no escaping that. And when he does, I will be there to collect, 
The same goes for you, Kephart. The snake stick man stood and turned to leave. What about his baby daughter? What about that part of your deal? The snake stick man stopped and turned back to face me, a silhouette of black against the white winter drifts. I keep my word, Kephart. She will be born again, but not for many, many years. And Ketch will not know her as a living man. That was the agreement. Maybe someday when he is my new companion and has taken Buck's place as the black dog of South Mountain, maybe then he will see her. But not before. And with that, the snake stick man again turned to leave. The wolf man trotted up on all fours, sniffed my face, and snarled at me. Then he took his place at the snake stick man's side and they walked together in lockstep through the falling snow into the ink-like gloom of the Appalachian winter night. I could not imagine Ketch ever taking Buck's place at the snakestick man's side. My friend's will seemed too strong. But what did I know? Apparently not very much. I watched Buck and the snakestick man until they were swallowed by the darkness of the forest and my eyes were closed from exhaustion. That was the last page? I closed the book and turned to face the bookseller who still stood behind me. Is that it? Is that all there is? What happened to them? But the bookseller didn't answer me. Instead, he pointed at the rising floodwaters. We'd better go to the roof, I said. The flood is getting worse. He looked out the window. I was right. The water was rising and washing under the door jam, flooding the shop again. Well, not all bad news, I thought to myself. At least that thing was gone. We made our way to the back door, up the fire escape, and onto the rooftop. We sat together, me and the bookseller, huddled under an awning. You told me there would be answers, I said, ducking raindrops and closing my coat tightly but ineffectively against the weather. The bookseller nodded. There were answers, he said. Then he smiled again, that strange, eternal smile. When I heard the howl this time, I felt something stir inside of me. The bookseller noticed. Feel it now, don't you? It wasn't a question, he knew I did. And yes, I felt it. I was thinking it, but I didn't yet believe it. I turned away from the sound of the howl and looked deep into the bookseller's craggy features. How old was he? I thought to myself. I was adopted. I blurted out, surprising myself with my own outburst. I wasn't sure why I started telling the bookseller about my past, but once I started, I couldn't stop myself. They found me on a firehouse doorstep, I continued. Nobody knows who abandoned me. There was no information. Someone had written my name on a scrap of paper and left it with me, and that was it. The bookseller cocked his head and looked into my eyes, urging me to keep going. So I did. But I was always curious about my heritage, I said. I always wondered who I was, so I finally took a DNA test a few weeks ago. Did you now? The bookseller mused. What did the test say? What did I think it would say? I wondered to myself. What did I want it to say? The results never came back. They lost my sample in the mail. I answered. It was the truth. I still didn't know where my family was from or who they were. The bookseller smiled even wider this time. Your name, it's the same as hers. He spoke quietly, but with force. Same as whose, I demanded. She was given an old French name before they buried her. One his wife's family used often, the bookseller continued. It meant much loved. Armandine, they called her, like you. Who? I demanded. Who was named Armandine? The bookseller took a deep breath and pursed his lips. Catch's infant daughter. The one he and his wife lost in childbirth and buried in the garden under the dogwood tree. The child Catch bartered his soul for. Lightning struck again, close, and temporarily blinded me. When I opened my eyes, the bookseller was gone. I was alone on the rooftop. The storm was fading away finally, and I stood up and looked out over the rooftops of the small town. My name. The little girl who died and the snake stick man promised to bring back. She and I had the same name. Armandine. I could see it, standing on the rooftop opposite, its black fur wet and glistening from the rain, its white teeth almost glowing in the semi-darkness. But despite the intimidating size and the monstrous bearing, when I saw the wolfman now, I was not afraid. I just watched it for a while, and it watched me. 
with dark, sad eyes. Then, as quickly as it had appeared, it was gone. Eventually, the weather cleared completely and the floodwaters receded. So I made my way back down the fire escape to the street below, and I looked for the bookshop entrance, even though I knew it would not be there. And I was right, it was gone, just like the bookseller and the wolfman. I wondered, did, did I wish to see it again? The black dog of South Mountain? The wolfman of Appalachia? Or whatever name I could give to the fever dream that was either as real as me or a concoction of my mind? What would I say to it? To him? Because he could not be what I thought he was, what the bookseller said he was. But what if? Had an eternity of his pain been worth it? I banished the thought from my mind and started walking, but as I walked, the thought came back to me again and again and again until finally I could no longer chase it away. An eternity of trouble. Was I worth it? Was anyone worth that? I think that perhaps is an unanswerable question, regardless of the truth or fallacy of Kephart's lost manuscript, which, by the way, I still held in my hands. The bookseller and his shop had disappeared, but the book itself was a physical reality I could hold on to. As I walked down Market Street, searching the wreckage of the flood for my car, I thought several times that I saw something in the shadows, something like the wolfman watching me, and I would walk forward expectantly, hoping to catch one last glimpse. But every time I turned a corner, I found nothing there but a memory. Moonshine Land is written by Ryan Michael Hines. Starring Dave Tooney. Jessica Kozak. Moonshine Land is recorded at Fireflower Studio in L.A.